Welcome to episode 36 of Seize the Moment podcast. Today we have a very special guest. His name is Chris Heath, MD. He's a trained psychoanalyst, board certified psychiatrist, and a physician who explores the inner workings of the human mind with insightful videos. His YouTube channel is called Heath MD, H E A T H M D. And welcome, Chris. Hi. Hi. Good, good to be on the show. Thank you for having me. Hey, Chris. Thank you so much for coming on. So I wanted to start off with an exploration of the unconscious. So sometimes, I mean, we kind of in popular culture, right? I mean, all of us to some extent know that we have sort of this deeper part of our brains that kind of controls us in some sort of way, right? But the most frequent question I feel like I get asked by people, not just in terms of like podcast audience or maybe even like um, just patients that I have, but just people just who would want to know, who are curious because they know that I study it. The question is, what is the unconscious and why do I need to know about it and how does it affect me? How would you answer that, Chris? Uh, absolutely. Uh, complicated question. But, you know, uh, the, the data is present for, for all of us. You know, why do you love who you love, for instance? Uh, and and why, do you, why do you guys make videos? And somebody else would hate to make videos. It, uh, and, and part of it, you can figure your way into it. But part of it is this kind of mystique underneath the surface that, that comes up and, and uh, the person that you fall in love with, it's, it's kind of from your inner self and your body and your emotions and, and, and you, you're willing, like with, with hobbies and with people that you love and even with friends, you're, you're willing to tolerate quite a bit of uh, difficulty sometimes in order to stick with that person. And so why, what is that stick with itness? Right. And, and mm -hmm. so and, and it's beyond words. Uh, the Freudians, I'm Freudian trained uh, and we Freudians don't have as much of um, language for it as much as the Jungians, for instance, Jung, the Jungian concept of numinosity. Mm -hmm. There's this thing called numinosity, which is the kind of the glow like like when Moses found the uh, bush that was burning. And and I think that's the only language they could put to the uh, the uh, presence of God in this experience that Moses had that this bush was burning but not being consumed by the flame right mm -hmm. and and so there's this depth and stuff that comes from the from underneath the surface uh, part of it may be the sense of awe when we're uh, see a mountainside or when we when we do experience something uh, more than natural supernatural a, a ghost or a, uh, or or the presence of God so so that's so how can that stuff happen if there's not a part of us underneath the surface? There's also – so so that's kind of the way to think about the unconscious, I think, uh, is that there's something more than our conscious experience. But pe but it gets people into trouble, right? It, 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 people start feeling shame all the time or they're afraid. We'll talk about creativity in a second, but there's things within our mind that kind of shunts the creative forces off to symptoms, for instance. Oh, I, I don't want to do any public speaking because everybody will be looking at me. I'm afraid I'll say something dumb. And as if that would be like so horrible that I'd have to quit my job or never speak again or and and so the depth of that the power of that uh, we think of the unconscious and like the uh, superego the, the the part of us that judges stuff and makes sure we're sticking with the rules uh, as as kind of a bad thing as a scary thing and i think that's what keeps people from even admitting that there is an unconscious but if you can see it I, I, I tell this to people if you can see it more like you know in pinocchio 
there's a character, Jiminy Cricket, mm -hmm. that is sort of uh, kind of leads Pinocchio and says, oh, don't do this, you know, and, and but but kind of helps Pinocchio see that uh, there, there's something more. And, and, and we've got a guide in us. Uh, it doesn't have to be there, – there's myths about the trickster, for instance, in uh, Loki or Coco Pelli in Native American religions where, where there's part of – well, there's – they externalize it, right? Uh, there's this uh, entity that kind of leads us into, uh, uh, it kind of tricks us. And I think our mind can be a trickster to us, you know? I like that you said that, actually. Um, so the, the way um, that when I speak about ego, for example, I don't do it from the uh, Freudian sense. Um, have you ever heard of like the working definition of uh, ego as like identification with uh, certain uh, thoughts or beliefs and then making them like into who you are. So like, for instance, say you had an intrusive thought or some sort of uh, running um, inner narrative. And then like it, you know, you decide to kind of go with that inner narrative and it can take you in all these different directions. Um, I find that like the ego in that sense uh, could be considered to be a trickster. And then like awareness of that could possibly, you know, lead you into, you know, to not be tricked. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, uh, Alan. So, but so the inner narrative—do we use it? Great, great perspective. Because uh, do we use the inner narrative to become aware of ourselves, or does it become almost like a possession state? The inner narrative kind of just guides us, and and we uh, aren't paying attention, and and so there we are, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's it's um, the the fact that if if you aren't aware of it, and where it can kind of uh, it can lead you to all these places. It can lead you into uh, misunderstandings with people. It could lead you to have um, a completely wrong view of someone. Say you're in a relationship and all of a sudden, let's say you're possessed by, uh, and this is not the ideal, of course, but like say you're possessed by jealousy and there's a sort of inner narrative that might be going on about what is this other person doing right now, all of that. They could just be at home relaxing or they could be doing whatever they told you that they're doing. But then you spin this whole narrative, your mind takes you in all these different directions. Then you, the next time you see them or perhaps, or you might be hit by an urge to interact with them in some sort of way. And then you'll be coming from this totally strange perspective, at least, you know, according to that person. And it can, it can definitely uh, be detrimental to your own life. I don't know. I think that's a very mm. relatable thing, actually. Mm -hmm. And that's just like one aspect, jealousy. There's, there's other things, too, yeah. that could occur. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in the jealousy, uh, you uh, create this out of the uh, inner narrative. You create this whole story around what your significant other is, is doing right now. And to give in to the inner narrative seems to me uh, which would be to be, you know, checking their phone and, and you, you call and test them to make sure they're not doing something wrong or something like that, which, which shuts out the possibility of just trusting them and allowing if they are doing something that you'd not like, well, you'd, you'd feel bad, you'd feel betrayed, but you can't really keep those kinds of things from happening. You have to uh, if if you can set the inner narrative aside and just trust the other person and maybe even ask them, hey, I had this weird thought, you know, I, I wondered if you were really home. Tell me you were home and 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 check it out with them. And and they can it's OK to feel jealousy, but it's not it's detrimental to live your life that way and always checking. And 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 it takes away from the possibilities that yeah. you could have. 
And what's so cool about like Chris and I is that we sort of, even though we come from two conceptually different frameworks, although not completely, because you know, kind of, I'm assuming Chris borrows techniques from CBT, and I obviously borrow True. analytic techniques. So the, the way I kind of think about it, and it's, I think it's really cool that you guys brought this up because kind of going back into the unconscious or what that is, sort of the way I would conceptualize it, and Chris, I definitely want to hear your take on it, is that when it comes to these sort of inner narratives that we spin, right, that are more conscious, that let's say when it comes to jealousy, when it comes to anger, rage, that we're so sure that we know of what's true about the other person, what they're doing, what their experience is, a lot of the times, right, and I'm going to kind of use a more psychoanalytic framework here, even though it's also CBT, is that there is a sort of, there are these unconscious ways of seeing ourselves that are pretty much investing or rather, um, what's the word, informing the way we see other people or the way we see their motivations and intentions. So from a CBT framework, that would pretty much look like here are these core beliefs, the way you see yourself, and these core beliefs are pretty much the ones that are activated whenever you sort of make an assumption about what another person is thinking or doing. So Chris, what would you say is the connection between some of these unconscious beliefs and let's say the way we see ourselves, the way we see the world, the way we see other people? Absolutely. Uh, you know, this, I think the schema of CBT and uh, uh, unconscious of the psychoanalytic perspective, uh, you get down to the root of it and they're, they're almost the same. I would argue the same. You know, I mean, uh, Aaron Beck was a psychoanalyst who created CBT. Uh, it, so you get down and we're all human. And so all these models are, are just trying to identify stuff about us people. Right. And, and, and so, yeah, the, the thought the jealous thought really isn't unconscious. Yeah, I, I agree. It's it's kind of a, a, the uh, tip of the iceberg of a bunch of stuff under the surface where you're not – whatever is driving the jealous thought. Do you not feel good enough or uh, do you have a, a, a issue with basic trust where you taught growing up, for instance, from, from a developmental model that you really can't trust anybody? That's a really early thing that we, we learn. And so, so uh, out of that not trusting anyone, well, it would kind of make sense that you would begin to feel jealous. Uh, but 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 yeah, the unconscious is not conscious, and and so so unconscious fantasy uh, is is pretty deep under the surface. There even, there's even kind of levels of it that that as you're listening, as I as a therapist are in listening to someone, it kind of unfolds. I start uh, perceiving that there's more to this story. Uh, not just, uh, oh, I'm jealous because my girlfriend uh, uh, lied to me once and now I can't trust anything she says. Well, y yeah, you have to build trust and all that stuff. But there's also something within you that's that's driving that. And, and, and so so how do you perceive that? Mm hmm yeah and sometimes what people do is when they look at let's say particular facts rather than when constructing their narratives it's sometimes very hard for us to see because it is sort of unconscious and it is deeper down that it's hard for us to see or acknowledge that the narratives that we spin based on very limited information are more so based on these schemas these ways that we see ourselves in the world around us sometimes it's one sometimes it's the other sometimes it's a combination of factors right where it's the world where it's the other people and where it's the way you see yourself where it's like I don't feel like I'm good enough but then also at the other end I feel like people aren't trustworthy and it's like what sort mm. of um and this is I, I mean for me i want want obviously chris to explain this a little bit more but um from my perspective what therapy is is just sort of at least initially in the beginning stages is a better understanding of the way you see yourself the way you see the world and really just examining why those things are the way they are well chris well, what do you think what is sort of what yeah. is therapy how would you describe that to people uh wow well, a couple of thoughts at the same time but but the the basic question what is therapy from a psychoanalyst point of view uh, i think all that psychoanalytic therapists have as a tool is our um, our feelings, 
are what used to be actually in the early days of American psychoanalysis was uh, thought of as pathologic, uh, where where the therapist has feelings about what they're hearing. Uh, oh, you weren't in psychoanalysis long enough. So the early, I don't think that's what Freud intended. And and that's if you look at uh, international trends in psychoanalysis, they for a long time have been very aware of the what's called countertransference. Mm-hmm. There's these uh, inner feelings that like like uh, and and it's very simple stuff because Freud for instance uh, based the model of psychoanalysis that he developed partly on his his uh, feelings he feel a certain way with a person or be more anxious with somebody or and and that's data and that's data that we all have and and part of why we like certain people and don't like certain people but if I'm thinking before like a I'm about to see a patient and I've been seeing them for a long time I kind of know them and and if I'm excited to see this person mm-hmm. uh, can't wait uh, disappointed when they when they cancel uh, or or the other extreme like oh no I hope they cancel today because because they're uh, it's ter- not because they're difficult or boring Th- that has nothing to do with it uh, it this what I'm talking about right now is my internal reaction to them and so that's and I believe that's what therapy is about is is for me to listen with the third ear sort of and help the person uh, beca- uh, develop a, a new perspective about themselves mm-hmm. uh, Jung Jung talked about this circum I hate using uh, terminology, but circumambulation mm-hmm. of the self, which is he described it as you're looking at a chandelier, and if you're looking at the chandelier, you all only see certain faucets. But if you just slightly move, you start seeing a completely different picture of this chandelier mm-hmm. if it's complex, and and people are, mm-hmm. and and so uh, and so for the person who's stuck in in like uh, Leon said, uh, uh, this way of seeing the other and, and way of seeing themselves. I, I agree that both are important, uh, and if they can begin to use uh, what the therapist is saying, what uh, what they're perceiving about themselves in these habits of, oh, I always hate my boss, or I always feel jealous, or these patterns that where they begin to see new aspects of themselves, and, and you can grow through that. Oh, that's my unconscious playing a trick on myself, or that feels just like when my mother used to do this and... But this isn't my mother that I'm talking to. This is my romantic partner, and uh, and so so heightened awareness, heightened understanding. Yeah, that uh, that's kind of a reductionistic way to say say it. But but it's true because uh, like like we're all all three saying I think to uh, to become a, a more aware of dimensions of oneself, and some of that is through the reflection in the therapist. And, and I, th- I think that's the way therapy works. And Chris, what is transference and countertransference? That a great question. I, th- and and that's why I, I really try not to use terminology. But but transference is a great concept because, uh, like Leon Leon was talking, you were talking about uh, uh, this view of the self and the view of the other. And and uh, fr- and there's a field of psychoanalysis called object relations, which says uh, the same kind of thing. Where where it's not just that I'm always jealous of my girlfriend uh, or what my girlfriend's doing. Uh, it's also that I see myself in this way, where I mostly unconsciously find myself in these situations where I'm feeling jealous. And so 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 um, there's this way of seeing the other and seeing myself. That, so transference uh, is a name for this this kind of 
um, I'll use another term, projection, mm -hmm. uh, this, this, uh, this expectation that we have of the other person. Like, uh, uh, like if, if you give talks and, and you're afraid everybody's going to be critical of you, that's, uh, it, I would say that's transference. Now, now some people you, uh, limit the term transference to just in the therapeutic realm, mm -hmm. where, where it's only the expectations that are projected onto the therapist. Like, I see my therapist... I'm sure she doesn't like me, and she's uh, she would rather I cancel and and but but those are expectations that, that may have nothing to do with with what is on her mind and 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 uh, but the trick is we carry that around all the time like that that transference stuff is is like I'm expecting you guys to criticize me or or when I get home and I'm I'm late and my wife's going to criticize it, it, there's these expectations and that's that's what's typically called transference. And so the beauty of that in the psychoanalytic realm, like when, when I, as a therapist, am meeting with somebody, I, I perceive that transference, but partly unconsciously. It, it, yeah, sometimes when they're always expecting me to be critical, uh, it's kind of conscious. But, but what if it feels funny, like if it feels uncomfortable, or especially if the person starts talking about something in particular that they have a lot of feelings about, and, and I get a feeling about it, and, and uh, that's the countertransference. It's a response to what the person, what the patient's bringing in, mm -hmm. uh, from, from, uh, from at least from my model of psychoanalysis. Uh, some psychoanalytic models, uh, really uh, the relational models, for instance, uh, talk about a, a, a reality that's co-created between therapist and patient. Uh, I tend to, th I, I think there's some truth to that, mm -hmm. uh, but I think, uh, I tend to think that the patient brings in what they bring in. And, and my uh, feelings during the session are generally a reaction to that. It may be a personal reaction where, yeah, I have my own sensitivities in history and so I'm going to react in a certain way, but I'm reacting to what, you know, the patient's bringing in, the transference, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, it's actually, it's, it's very interesting because, for example, what if the patient is projecting uh, superiority onto you or some sort of status, right? And this is not unusual. I mean, you would, you would think they, they should, right? They're going to see a therapist. They want to give authority to you, right? But the thing is, since they do that, that it sort of makes it, it shifts the conversation to sort of like uh, they're down here and you're up here. Uh, maybe it, this is one instance. No, it, it does it could go yeah, other right, ways right. too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so in, in that sense, it, it, the level of conversation it wouldn't feel like they're talking to like, oh, I'm just talking to another person. I'm talking to my friend, or I'm talking to someone I can fully confide in. Sometimes when they're projecting that status, they're even critical of the things they say themselves. Not even just expecting you to be critical. They'll be critical of what it is that they're saying. So it at least probably in the beginning, they need to, you know, uh, it probably takes some time to get used, you know, for both to get used to each other. Yeah, right? And sometimes they're even critical of you when you don't meet their expectations. If you're going to be on a pedestal, yeah. they say you fall off the pedestal at times, right? Yeah, I, yeah the, uh, uh, I agree about, uh, well, so what, what Alan's bringing up is uh, both uh, the projection on me, the therapist, as uh, they expect me to be superior or feel superior, uh, and, and, and they're going to start judging themselves, which, which is why this transference is really a part of them. 
uh, they're, they're bringing in this expectation that I'm all high and mighty. Uh, and if I really was, they're consulting me. They're paying me. I mean, if I'm going to be uh, a pompous butthead, uh, they they should go somewhere else. But but Sorry. if uh, <laughs> but but fact is, I mean, if if, if either well, two ways that can play out. One is that I'm I'm not a uh, I mean maybe I can be pompous sometimes, but 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 I'm not that way all the time. And if they're seeing me that way all the time, yeah, that that's uh, that's the transference, and 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 it's kind of embedded in them. They start limiting themselves, and and and, and that probably happens everywhere they go. Uh, but they may also have a blind spot, so that like if they're expecting pompous in everywhere in other people particularly in people in authority like doctors tend to be in our culture uh they may end up with people uh, that are pompous uh it, it it's a big kind of danger where uh it, this is part of why people end up marrying after a divorce they'll marry somebody just like the last person because they got blind spots they don't realize the problems that they're stepping into yeah, and I think that the best therapist. Oh, go ahead, Alex. Sorry. Uh, no, no, sure. Yeah, actually, how do you get them to drop their um, projection, or not to drop it? I suppose to uh, be aware of it, or as best as they can to sort of uh, ease up on their projections, like in sessions with you, because actually that could probably be very valuable to anyone listening if if they knew how to. Um, you know, they, they, they may not be aware that they're projecting, but say they are aware that they're projecting. How can they maybe do it less or uh, maybe mitigate its effects? Or mitigate its mm-hmm. effects. Wow. Uh, there's a really uh, important concept uh, that we're taught in training. The uh, It feels as if. It feels as if my therapist is pompous or judging me. But I, I know because of experiences that I'll have with that therapist that they're really not. Uh, and the way that, that emerges in sessions is that sometime or another, I as therapist, for instance, uh, will perceive uh, them thinking I'm judging them. And I might even say, it sounds like you feel like I'm judging you right now. Uh, and uh, either I might say, uh, what's that like <laughs> to feel like you're being judged by me? I don't usually say, hey, I'm not judging you. Sometimes I will. If it's really powerful and it's just like in the way, then uh, then I'll say something like, you know, I, I, I'm not feeling that way right now. Uh, but but usually I'll imply it in my question. Like it 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 feels like it's I sense that you feel judged right now. Uh, what's going on? And hopefully they can talk about it. And and as we unfold it, hey, maybe I was being judgmental uh, by accident or something like that. Uh, and but even so, uh, it's it's got this power to them. Like uh, oh my gosh, you know, there's the power differential, and uh, I can't trust anybody, can I? Mm-hmm. Uh, or something like that. And 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 if after a while you get this. Uh, 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 real relationship where you can begin to say whatever's on your mind and and if if you can talk about you know feeling judged uh, and eventually get to where well what if I wasn't judging you what if I was just hearing you out and and what and what if this is just like uh, all your bosses that you just described? And and Carl uh, 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 Menninger uh, uh, was a psychoanalyst uh, oh back in the fifties I guess wrote a lot and and uh, he talked about I think it was the Menninger triad where it's where it comes true in the therapist with the therapist and the transference and with other people in their life right now and in their past and if you can connect those three because uh, usually this stuff. These sensitivities are things that are an artifact of the way a person grew up 
uh, during development, our brain grows enormously and, and tends to uh, kind of work around whatever problems there are in our environment or our reactions to the environment. And so, so we're carrying that around, and, and then we got a thousand experiences just like that as an adult. And, and so um, uh, and, and I, I do this sometimes. I'll get lost in talking, and I don't remember the exact question that you <laughs> asked, Alan. Oh. <laughs> but, but, I think, but I think you were talking about how this comes alive and how does the, uh, a patient uh, use that to understand themselves uh, and not just be stuck in thinking that their, uh, their therapist is critical of them. Uh, and, and, that's, and, and so my, question, my answer was, eventually, through all that that I just said, uh, you develop this, you help the patient develop the sense of, well, it feels as if they're judging me. And by the way, as if I'm so sensitive to that judgment that I wouldn't be able to speak back or talk, you know, fight back if need, as if all that. But it really is we're just two adults here just talking about stuff, and I just want to understand. And so that duality is, is really crucial for people to develop. Yeah. And, no, and, I think, and I think that one of the best concepts to come out of like um, psychoanalytic theory, and this is predominantly from Carl Jung's version of kind of the world or the psyche. Um, so I don't, so uh, of course, I don't necessarily agree with much of what Jung said, but however, there was a really great concept that I still continue to use. And I think pretty much in any sort of school of thought when it comes to therapy, I think all of us do this. Um, so the reason why we engage in Socratic questioning is to kind of, to, to sort of speak on Alan's point about superiority, right? So sort of the best therapists in the world, whether they're psychoanalysts, whether they're, you know, CBT or REBT practitioners, what they tend to do is they tend to utilize Socratic questioning in order to sort of get the person to come to the answers on their own, because there's this sort of belief that there is a sort of, going back to Jung, right? This inner self, right? This sort of what he called Philemon, he named his kind mm. of superior wise man so there's a sort of deeper self mm. that already to some extent has all of these answers right not all of them obviously and i mean the way we kind of conceptualize things for them is really important too unquestionably right but the idea is that i mean the way i kind of see it is that sometimes we give them new information but a lot of times what we do is we take what they already know and kind of weave it together into a way or forms that really make sense for them that they could say oh wow yes no you're right mm -hmm. like it's like that aha moment right but the aha moment is usually from them so if let's say you're a therapist or a psychiatrist or a doctor and you're like okay here i'm gonna give you all of the answers right that's what you pay me for i am supposed to be superior to you what's gonna happen is unfortunately the person's gonna think of you as pretty much their guru and they're gonna come to you for everything and they're gonna blame you for everything when things don't go their way so the best sort of practitioner is someone who's supposed to kind of help the person unlock like their inner selves right and again they have this information the most that we do is we sort of get it out through questioning from them and we kind of as best as we can take that information and sort of and put them into concepts that they could just easily easily not to say that they can't but easily in the way that they can easily remember not that easily understand but in the way that they can remember and in a way they could sort of carry them forth but what i find is for the most part that the answers that people already have within them are pretty much just like their answers just waiting to be unlocked it's just like again going back to the concept of the unconscious these are just ideas that they don't think about right and i think it's something that alan once said to me in a conversation that we were having like on values and we were talking about our mm -hmm. friends and i don't remember exactly what it was but alan was telling me well he's like yeah he's like you know we know like there are certain things that are true right we just like don't think about them right like and johan hari the researcher calls it like we focus on junk values right even though somewhere deep down inside we really know what's important but we just don't think 
think about it on a daily basis. We think about survival, we think about sort of um, the things that are going to make us happy in the short term, right? But we don't focus on these deeper long term goals and wishes that pretty much that we know are going to make us happier, these sort of more um, kind of meaningful ways of living life. And Chris, for you, how do you feel like all of that relates to the unconscious? Uh, sometimes, uh, uh, Leon, so, uh, sometimes we don't think about it and sometimes we don't want to think about it. So what if I'm in a bad relationship? It really is bad. And, and, uh, my, uh, it's abusive or, or distant or, uh, there's, there's unreconcilable differences. What keeps me in? Uh, is it uh, that I don't want to see because I've got um, sort of a, a, a inner longing, a dependency longing, or something like that that keeps me in this relationships? And 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 I don't. I'm so afraid of being alone that I'm willing to tolerate that. And that being afraid of being alone might be the very thing that I need to be be paying attention to. Uh, but but all this stuff. Oh, I'm in a bad relationship, for instance, uh, might be a distraction. There's there's other things that. You know, there it becomes very complicated relationships, and whether you stay or whether you go. But 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 one of the factors may be that you're afraid of being alone, and 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 so uh, so and, and that gets played out in therapy too. I I think uh, Leon ha- has found this too that that there's uh, whatever the longings are or whatever the um, uh, fears of being alone, for instance. That uh, I think that's a common thing that gets played out in in therapy. Uh, and for instance, when I take a vacation. Sometimes, uh, actually always, uh, the week before I take a vacation is really difficult because everybody's all stirred up. Mm -hmm. And and why is that? It's because I'm not just like a consultant for business or something. Uh, There's a real relationship. Uh, and, And what's it mean? For me to be gone for a week or two, and 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 for the person to understand themselves, uh, like Leon's saying, uh, it's available to them. But also, then it adds a kind of an uh, um, an experience to it. Like you discover that about yourself in the presence of somebody that you're beginning to trust, your therapist. And and uh, and yes, Leon, I agree completely that. Um, they have the truth within them. I'm, I'm, I'm not here to advise anybody. I'm here to help them understand themselves. And, and, and so for us to discover that together, and that's, I think, how the relationalists, this new kind of wave of psychoanalysts, uh, they would say it, they've been there all along. They've had more of an effect on American psychoanalysis in the last 30, 40 years or so, where the therapeutic experience is, co- is co-created. In in that way, it is that that the person comes in. I'm there to understand where they're coming from, and we together make that experience an important one that's memorable and and uh, gives potential for growth. Yeah. And and so um, I, I, I don't know, uh, Leon. What what are your thoughts about uh, that experience as being co-created? Because I don't think you know my understanding. What little CBT training I've had, uh, it, it, it this from a pure CBT model is not so co-created. Uh, the, the person brings in their symptom or you define a symptom mm-hmm. and, and, and then you may together develop a plan around it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, uh, but it seems like, it seems like it's more of, uh, like, um, uh, the, uh, uh, there's a, uh, determined, uh, there, it's predetermined sort of the, the sequence of the sessions, which, uh, which might interfere with the co-creation of something new. 
Mm, okay, I mean, I guess that's an interesting way of conceptualizing it. Um, I see it a little bit differently. So the way that cool. I would see it is, so the thing is, it's uh, that's definitely a myth. Like, um, so kind of even sort of practitioners who are not CBT practitioners tend to think of CBT as like the here and now, although that's actually a myth. So it's cool. it's usually about the here and now because I mean, pretty much the here and now is what the client brings in. But the idea yeah. is when we're going into deeper core beliefs and we're examining evidence for them and we're examining where they stem from, you're pretty much going back to the past in every case. So, well, that, okay, I mean, that's too that's too extreme. So not in every case, but for the most part, I mean, if you're sure. if it's long term CBT therapy, then you're gonna mm-hmm. pretty much hit on where these beliefs came from. So in terms of the co creation, so um, I guess you can see it as that because what you're doing is you're pretty much creating new narratives for the other person. So you're creating narratives mm-hmm. that at first the person is resistant to, not always, but a lot of times because the way that a lot of my clients conceptualize CBT initially is like, oh, you're just giving me positive spin, and I don't want that so sure yeah so interestingly enough when i teach the when i teach my clients how to do what's called the cognitive thought record so so they do one of two things initially so first they resist right and then they're like oh well see i'm telling you i'm right i don't even want to bother or then they try to do it but they reframe their beliefs in a too positive way so they'll come and they'll bring me the thought record and i'll look at it and i'll say okay i mean i'm glad you felt better but what you said so they went from like i feel like a terrible person to i feel like a great person right but I'm like, but why do you feel like a great person based on the evidence? And they're like, well, isn't that what I'm supposed to do? I'm supposed yeah. to be training myself to think positively. <laughs> and that's when the work really starts. Yes, right? yes, yes. <laughs> so essentially the creation itself is the sort of what we do is um, – and so the way I kind of try to present it, it's not so much that we're thinking of oh, – so. If positivity is a byproduct, that's phenomenal and that's excellent. And I definitely hope that that's the case. But the idea is that we try to see things way more factually. So if we're looking at it from the cognitive perspective, the idea is that we become our own sort of philosophers. So what I teach them in the way of, I guess you can definitely look at it as creation, is I teach them how to become their own sort of Socrates, their internal philosopher, king or queen. And so the idea is they now learn how to examine the world from a little, not completely because it's not possible, from a little, from the standpoint of a bit of detachment, where they're able to kind of view their lives mm. from a way of, let's say, object or a framework of objectivity. Again, to whatever sense, to whatever extent that's possible, we're always going to have blind spots. Um, but the idea is that if you kind of go from there. And you're saying to yourself, look, I really just want to be as honest as possible with myself. Then the behavioral part, when you do find that you're coming up with, let's say, thoughts and you're coming up with interpretations that are real and they don't, let's say, fit with what you want your life to look like, then the idea is, okay, how do we create strategies to help you kind of either mitigate the effects of whatever those truths are or just sort of pretty much overcome them altogether. But the idea is the creation is sort of twofold. On the one hand, you're creating sort of better ways of thinking and new narratives for the other person that you're obviously doing together because I can't answer those questions for them. I can only give them the tools pretty much to be able to answer it for themselves. And the other part of it, the behavioral part, is where we work together to create different ways of interacting with their worlds and different ways of interacting yeah, with their problems that they may have not have thought of before. So the idea is that in a way, I, I think all therapy is essentially maturity. What we're working on together, yeah. and my too, my maturity too, because with clients, when I deal with the issues that they bring in, I have to mature mm. to, uh, to mature as well. Because there's no way for me to react in the same ways that I would have reacted acted, I don't know, like say five, 10 years ago, because the client would leave, um, it pretty much disrupt the kind of the flow of the treatment, right? If I were to, so if I were to bring in my own cognitive distortions into the room, what would happen is essentially that it would pretty much, it would either abruptly could bring an end to the treatment or it would just sort of deteriorate it to the point where like the person doesn't really want to be there, but might still feel like they have to. 
which is the necessity for for a ther- for a therapist to go through their own therapy, so we can understand our our cognitive distortions or blind spots or neuroses, and 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 so that uh, my analyst told me one time uh, we become like a uh, uh, instrument ourselves, where where uh, so we have to know ourselves really well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, exactly, and to your point, um, and also to the point before, there is a sort of co-creation going on. It is definitely a, a different approach to it. Um, but for the sheer fact that there's feedback going on, I mean, wouldn't you say just, yeah. just because there's feedback, there's definitely some kind of co-creation? Yeah, absolutely. Between, mm-hmm. Yeah. And then also, uh, aren't you anyway bringing your cognitive distortions into the um, session, even if you're uh, doing a cognitive thought record for them? Like, aren't you still... Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure you're prone to your own. Uh, no, everybody is. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and my neuroses too. I, I, yeah. So I, I had a long analysis, uh, four and five days a week for like, I mean, 15 years, and and I, I know myself pretty well. And still, but but uh, like I, I went through mindfulness training uh, recently, and uh, and and my understanding of mindfulness is that even if you're uh, uh, a guru at mindfulness, you still go back and forth. Uh, uh, one of them, a guru said one time, that it's sort of like the waves of the ocean. You become more aware and less aware, and and uh, I guess more neurotic and less neurotic. Uh, I, I, as a therapist, if if I'm uh, tired one week, I'll be, for instance, I get a little. Um, so, so my issues lead to me being a little sticky sometimes. Like, like I'll go a little over with a patient, uh, and uh, or or I'll have a little bit harder time talking about money, which is a really difficult kind of thing where we have to set firm boundaries. And 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 that's my stuff. And and I and and so I have to know: is it my stuff, or is it this person in particular that I'm having a hard time setting boundaries with because of something they're bringing in? Mm-hmm. Uh, so absolutely, yeah, Alan. Uh, we we still bring our own stuff into the room uh just to be aware of it is is uh, a really helpful thing just in life but especially doing therapy right how how do you like uh the mindfulness training that you recently underwent like uh how do you feel after that uh, it, it was really amazing. I, it was actually a, a, a PhD friend of mine at UT Southwestern, uh, Monty Evans, uh, does a lot of this mindfulness work with people. And, and so he had a training for trainers, like he trained us to, to train people in mindfulness. And, and it was quite an experience because when things weren't going right, I could say, hey, this, you know, what do I do with this thought that's in my head, you know, or something like that. And, and, but, uh, but I started doing – a lot of my – sense of peace came from my work in my psychoanalysis and and kind of my internalized memory of being in analysis and so it's kind of a mindful process in and of itself but when i was doing so i went through this training so i was doing a mindfulness exercise most days and and you change you start feeling different and and it wasn't it wasn't quite gratifying enough for me to continue to do it i Actually, just yesterday I didn't exercise because I was bothered by something. And but 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 you start feeling like you feel the ground underneath your feet more, and you feel yourself in the in your environment more. In my experience, and Headspace is a, a, a app that a lot of psychiatrists use, and 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 so uh, and, and that's what I use sometimes. Really simple app, but uh, but boy, it it kind of changes your mind. I can see where you know there's studies of Buddhist monks, and they say the uh, EEG patterns after like five thousand hours of of yeah. meditation, their their brain changes, right? And, and I I believe it. Yeah, and it's. 
God. Pardon, sorry. <laughs> so one thing that's very interesting is, uh, say, uh, you know, bringing it back to the beginning of this conversation, if let's say that you're going through some sort of inner narrative, but then you practice mindfulness in the midst of that inner narrative. And, and let's say that inner narrative is one that it's, um, it's not the kind where it's not from the frame of uh, you're in a, in a mode of brainstorming, like critical thinking. Let's say from that inner narrative where it's a little more out of your control, like mm, one of those. Yeah. And then, yeah. yeah, so when you bring mindfulness into that, let's say you start, uh, feel, like you said, feeling the ground beneath you, or you start feeling uh, your hands or other parts of your body, it could sort of right. give you sort of a distance or a space between that uh, thought or that construct or that narrative. And then what's interesting is it can kind of, uh, it gives you a little bit of leeway to kind of pull yourself out of it. Or you'll you'll notice like, oh, I'm doing the narrative right now. Or this is this is something... Maybe maybe this isn't true what I'm thinking, and then it can kind of take you down a different path as opposed to being possessed by the narrative. Right. Yeah. Right. It, it, so so that it might give you. Uh, so even if you haven't been through therapy, uh, to to set yourself away from the thought or the thing that's bothering you just enough so that you can begin to observe it and and wonder, well, wait, why am I so worried about that? Or or what what happens if the feared outcome does happen well i'll still be alive it's going to be okay uh th that kind of separation so that if you're in the middle of it it's it's really hard to see a positive outcome sometimes yeah, yeah absolutely and so what i wanted to mention before was that um so it's so interesting so you know obviously daniel kahneman so daniel kahneman the one who sort of um, conceptualized system one and system two thinking one is intuition and the other one is the more rational part of our minds well the more rational process of our conclusions thinking um, fast and slow yes right? there yeah, it is yeah, 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 great book. Great so book, yeah. so daniel kahneman was asked so somebody said well i forgot who the um who the podcast host was but he asked him he said well so like now that you're you know you're such an expert and obviously these distortions and you know i've seen the world sort of realistically right you probably like you don't engage in any of them at all like he's like no i engage in them all the time <laughs> right so but, right might even enjoy them more now right <laughs> right. Yeah. right so I, the, the reason why i bring this up is back to the point that alan made earlier i think it was a question that you may have asked um no you made a point you said that like oh yeah the therapist <laughs> the therapist brings in their own sort of distortions into the room right and so the answer is yes so every single person in the entire planet engages in cognitive distortions right it's a myth that mentally ill people do and mentally healthy people don't right not the case so the idea is between the two is that one pretty much has it uses the tools and the other side whatever not even a side because it's a continuum but let's say for simplicity the other side doesn't right so let's say for like the dan daniel Kahneman's of the world and just the therapists who know of these tools what they do is that whenever a cognitive distortion does come in they pretty much ask themselves like is this my way of seeing this person like am i actually seeing themselves or them as they are or is it a way of me seeing myself in some sort of way is it indicative of something other than this relationship which is pretty much chris's point about counter transference right it's sort of examining your own counter transference and asking yourself like okay is this about this patient or is it about this client or is it actually about me and something that or some sort of experience of the past with someone else that i'm actually re-experiencing in this room with them mm -hmm. Uh, in the moment, in, consciously, as well as multiple levels to it. I mean, uh, the other, so so one extreme would be a straightforward, I'm having a really strong reaction to this person right now. What's that about? You could ask yourself. And and is that like experiences I've had before or, or work that I've done on myself? Or is there, are they bringing something new in? Mm -hmm. And what is that? But but uh, so, but on uh, sort of a deeper level and more unconscious would be, you know, I find myself being a little bit more accident prone. Mm -hmm. 
accident prone this week and or or uh you know that uh my wife leaving the cap off the toothpaste tube is bugging me more this week and what's going on with me and then i have a dream uh i'll make a dream up about uh, being chased by somebody and and then i might start thinking about well what does the chaser look like and 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 but you got to pay attention to what it feels like and 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 eventually so that's the way i think the unconscious informs us is that partly through patterns and partly through emotional reactions that we have and 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 we start listening under the surface so so that that awareness the tools that leon's talking about uh, are are multi-layered i think in the moment right now or uh what is it about people with orange shirts that bugs me well yeah but but yeah it's me right? <laughs> uh, or, or, or you know uh, are there uh, sort of more subtle things that are emerging into my awareness and 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 i can begin to wonder about them it's it's multiple levels it's pretty cool stuff these tools that that we build as as therapists and and during therapy. Yeah. And so, Chris, and what is drive theory and how does it relate to the unconscious and creativity? Drive theory is a really cool thing. And it, it's, you know, it goes in and out of favor. I'm not sure why. It's partly uh, an artifact of it, psychoanalysis in America has has evolved over and, and uh, over the last uh, 80 years or so. And and like I say, uh, it has it, we're, we're more aware of the co-creation uh, over the last 40 years. But but before that, uh, the stereotype, the caricature of American psychoanalysts it was more that – you know they had the answers mm-hmm. uh like uh, that alan was saying a second ago and, and boy that's that a i mean so many problems with that and 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 we're much less pompous nowadays uh but 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 part part of uh and so i think that's why uh drive theory has fallen kind of in less favor recently but it's a really powerful theory because it theorizes that there's an energy from our unconscious that drives us that drives motivation that drives creativity and and it begins uh freud talked about the parallel between that and and sexual drive uh sometimes he'd call it a sex drive because uh, he thought that sex was sort of the essence of it but but it's not exactly sex because babies have this too uh, like like the uh, uh, six month old that uh, if anybody know has been around a six month old that breastfeeds they're like into breastfeeding it's not just uh like when i eat cheese for lunch okay and but but no it's like it engulfs them and they engulf it and 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 it's that uh drive about exciting things in our life uh, that that is what this drive theory is about and so uh so so many things about it but 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 part of it i, I think the modern kind of uh, uh application of drive theory is through creativity that that uh there's a susan derry d-e-r-i has a book on uh uh, it's old it's like from the 80s but uh, she talks about creativity and and psychoanalysis and her theory is a little bit um uh different than the typical freudian Uh, she talks about the but it's intuitive uh that this drive there's there's energy that comes from under the surface. Uh, Jung talked uh, about uh, psychic energy. Uh, Freud talked about the libid- libidinal uh, drive. But but there's this energy, uh, and it can be. Freud talked about this in the uh, three essays on the theory of sexuality. Where 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 does that drive go? Uh, does it does it truly be uh, according to Susan Derry? Is it met in a potential? 
uh, from the Freudian ego, where where uh, this part of us that ha- that co- grapples with the world, uh, grapples with this this energy, meets it as it is, and and creates something, or uh, more often, and this is what Freud said, does it get shunted? Uh, does this drive get uh, displaced into uh, worrying too much or some other symptom? Uh, it, does it become an inhibition? Does it become, uh, in, in Freud's terms, a perversion where it gets mm-hmm. kind of uh, thrown into uh, needing to control people or, or uh, the, the, these kinds of uh, acting out kind of pursuits? Uh, and and so, so, so where does the drive go? Uh, the drive, uh, originally drive theory led to object relations theory because uh, drive theory, the drive, the libidinal drive is to connect, to connect with another person, whether it's the oral fixation of a baby breastfeeding or, uh, or, or uh, my excitement about doing videos or connecting with my patients or, or enjoying my time with my wife. The, this, uh, uh, it, uh, it, it connects with people. This, this was a, a potential this is a difference with with Jungian theory. Yeah, Jungian theory of, of psychic energy is that it, it kind of is it can go in other directions, uh, from my understanding. But 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 uh, so so the the drive, the libidinal drive at least, and arguably there may be a, another drive, the the death drive or uh, aggressive drive, and 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 uh, harder to talk about, but we can. Uh, but but the libidinal drive is really the central one that that causes us to do the things we do, uh, connect with the people we do, uh, and and and. But sometimes there's inhibitions about that. Uh, I, I think I, I, sometimes I think psychotherapy is all about attachment. How I go back and forth about this, but what's it like to be with a, another person in the room? Uh, do you want to connect too much, like, uh, or 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 does it make you anxious to to be around another person, and 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 you want to get the heck away, and 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 why would that be? But 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 mostly, there's I think it's really hard for us to balance uh, an optimum in- level of intimacy with another human being, and uh, and and that's and that's this drive. Uh, uh, it, it it may be. Uh, translatable into attachment theory nowadays where some babies can attach easily and some partly from experience have a hard time trusting their environment and knowing who to attach to but but that's but but that's the drive in, in a nutshell i guess and what do you all thought that, yeah so that's so interesting that you say that that um so essentially uh just the thought was that in terms of the drive and in terms of um, oh, the, in terms of the sort of the therapy room and the way it's kind of representative of a person's attachment style. So there was someone. So there's someone I know, and um, so it's so interesting for him. So because uh, so he's he's a really talented artist. Um, so he doesn't. So he creates pieces, not necessarily like painting or drawing, but he creates like these works of art that are pretty magnificent if you actually understand them. So here's the thing with him, right? So the way that I kind of conceptualize him is that. Um, he has a, like, let's say, so he has a, so he has a disorganized attachment style where it's kind of like, so for our audience, it's a mixture of sort of anxious and then sometimes it's avoidance. And it actually, what's so cool about it is that it comes up in this artwork. So his artwork is actually very, very ambiguous. So if you don't know what the symbols mean, you'll never understand it. And so the way he tries, so the way he kind of conceptualizes it is just like, well, look, I mean, if you guys really want to understand it, then, you know, you, you have to try. Like, that's just how it is. He's like, I'm not just 
gonna give it to you away for free. Mm -hmm. So the idea is the artwork for him, right? So first of all, creation, I think, is itself an intimate act. So whenever you're sort of creating, whether it's poetry, whether it's, um, let's say, you're writing an essay, a novel, whether you're painting, right? Doing a podcast. Doing a podcast, right? <laughs> so it's pretty much, it's a way for us to connect with other people and for us to be seen and known and accepted. So, but for him, right, he's, well, he struggled with acceptance, right? He struggles with sort of self-esteem and seeing himself and he struggles with sort of, or accepting that other people would actually see him and want to accept him. So his work is pretty much like a test for other people. So it's uh, it's pretty much indicative of the kind of uh, more avoidant part of his, uh, you know, kind of uh, attachment style. So the way he kind of sees it is that like, it's like a test. So pretty much, I, look, I understand that none of this makes sense to you, but if you really want to know me and if you really want to try, he doesn't verbalize this, but that's sort of the message that I take away from him. But it's pretty much like, if you really want to try, if you want to even ask me questions about my artwork, if you really care enough, then I'll try to explain it to you and then maybe I'll let you in, right? But if you don't and you just want to kind of take a look around and you want to say it's beautiful or it's ugly or whatever it is, that, that's just what it is. Mm -hmm. But for him, the sort of attachment style or the way he kind of sees relationships is manifested in his work because it's super sort of mysterious, right? Kind of like, um, so looking at his work is like literally being in the Freemasonic temple where it's like if you don't have the keys, you'll <laughs> never understand it. Sure. Yeah. Wow. And and so so there's this uh, hesitation. Uh, the uh, the observer really has to uh, offer themselves and 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 show themselves as trustworthy. I guess. Yeah. For for this artist to to let the the, the secrets be known. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Chris, did you ever find that with creativity that it's sort of a way, or it is like um, or with creative works that they are manifestations in some way of people's attachment styles. I love that, and I hadn't thought of it until you guys were bringing it up just now. But yeah, even when like I'm writing scripts for videos and and I'm not telling anybody I mean eventually when it gets good enough I'll I'll bring it up with my wife and we'll kind of co-create it but but when in the beginning but I'm not by myself mm -hmm. who am I with I'm, I'm with uh, you know my grandfather or or, or, or my that, that's been long gone you know I mean these voices in my mind or or which is really myself at this point but but that object relatedness that we we're talking about earlier where there's a fixed uh, kind of expectation of the other person and a view of myself and and that lives in us and 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 so so the so whether it's an uh, uh, sort of uh, object in the psychoanalytic sense, where it's internalized other people, uh, or or uh, 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 through you know the Jungian lens, where it's my ancestors kind of being with me, or or some way or another, yeah, I'm creating for and with someone else, even when I'm by myself. And and so so I I think, and I don't think that can happen without some idea of the other uh, to create something. Just to create something? I mean, it really uh, is an expression of a connection. Yeah. And an expression of the desire or the longing for connection. Absolutely. Yeah, because then, uh, great point, because, yeah, it's it, in my mind, for instance, uh, it's, it's creating something with and for the other person. But, but, but a real expression of creativity is eventually, cre uh, eventually produces something in the world where another person experiences it. Uh, uh, this is, uh, there's, uh, there's theories about uh, creativity, and there's, uh, actually, you know, there's, there's two kinds of creativity. There's, there's like the, uh, the big C creativity that uh, researchers talk about where you actually make a change in the world. 
but 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 there's the the little c creativity like like how am i going to solve this problem uh and like how am i going to make this squeaky door not squeak or something like that and 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 you may or may not eventually connect with another person through that activity but they're still the imagined person so 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 i don't know actually as i'm i'm talking kind of uh um Free, free associating here. I'm not sure if it always expresses. Uh, I'm not sure if the the product of creativity uh, always, depending on how you define creativity, connects with someone else. Uh, certainly, certainly pieces of art or those kinds of things. My videos, your podcasts, that they always do. Uh, you know, we always, even if if it's a, a script the scrap, it kind of goes into the next script. Uh, it, it eventually, the creative process in that way, I guess the capital C creativity, uh, always creates something for the other person. For the, uh, yeah, for the and, and that's the purpose of, of your videos, right? And of course, of this podcast, you want it to make an impact on other people, for them to, um, to either understand, let's say, uh, the unconscious mind or uh, I, I remember I saw a video of yours um, the other day it was about uh, our how our um, th th I'm gonna uh, Shoot, I, I'm gonna butcher this down, a little yeah. bit sorry but uh, <laughs> it's uh, something about how a person will um, uh, late at night let's say they're hungry uh, their ah. their willpower goes down yeah. it's not what right. you said exactly but yeah. that they're essentially their willpower goes down and then they'll um, get something to eat even though for the whole day they made this uh, commitment to you know eat however it is that they would and uh, and that was interesting to me like if a person could understand like these what's going on in their head for for moments like those or um, yeah. Or other moments in their lives like that could make a big change because by bringing awareness to it they'll have something put in such a way to them that they didn't think about it before and then they'll mm -hmm. have a different relationship to this thing they do daily in their life yeah. and it, it could potentially have a, a big impact on them uh, especially if they catch themselves in a moment of uh, grabbing food from the refrigerator or something like mm -hmm. that maybe they'll maybe they'll actually control what it is they have in their refrigerator at that time of the day if they know right. the willpower will go down. Yeah, yeah. So two levels. One is keeping that inner voice where uh, what you were intending earlier in the day, you can hold on to. Even if you don't quite believe it, you know that earlier today you were meaning not to eat any more, you know, cereal or whatever it is. Uh, but also to, to, yeah, be respectful of the fact that we uh, regress a little bit. We kind of melt at the end of the day when we're tired or if yeah. we're hungry or well hungry but 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 we're not talking about hunger right i mean uh, at the end of the day maybe you're on a diet and maybe you've kind of built up a calorie deficit and and you're hungry but but more often i hear people talking about they've eaten plenty during the day they're not really hungry but when they regress they start having uh, longings and sometimes that gets transformed into uh, what feels kind of like hunger and oh I'll go eat something and sure enough you'll have a different sensation inside of you and that'll distract you from the longing uh, it it's easy to think at 
you know, 11 in the morning uh, about that longing as it's not really that I want more cereal or whatever it is. It's it, it, maybe I'm lonely, maybe I, whatever. Uh, uh, but, but at night you start forgetting that part of you. And, and so, yeah, like Alan's saying to protect yourself by not having ice cream around, uh, during your uh, kind of, uh, saner parts of the day so that at night when you kind of melt down, you can kind of protect yourself in advance. Yeah. Uh, and I think like the big takeaway for I hope for people in terms of just uh, what therapy is or what it kind of has to offer. So whether you're going to see an analyst, whether you're going to see a cognitive behavioral therapist, the idea is that all of us have defenses and will have defenses until we die. So just the idea is some defenses are good and they're helpful and not. Let me just yeah. kind of reconceptualize. Some defenses are helpful long term and some defenses are more helpful short term. So the you one. Thank you. <laughs> so yeah. in terms of therapy, what it does is it really just helps you sort of take one group of defenses and try as best as we can right to replace them with a better group of defenses so if let's say you're feeling lonely right instead of kind of dealing with uh, or trying to sort of um, mask it with you know kind of hunger and obviously food more food or cal caloric intake what you would do in therapy is you would actually kind of work toward you know kind of over to whatever extent again that's possible nobody's ever never going to be lonely but to whatever extent that's possible right to sort of overcome your loneliness to sort of have more of a sense of a community in your life where let's say like if you're feeling lonely instead of going to eat at night you'll have maybe somebody you can reach out to right or you maybe if you again creativity right because creativity is intimacy maybe that's another way of dealing with loneliness maybe you could go write or draw or paint or do something that you know and like maybe not the short term but in the long term will deepen your connections with other people mm -hmm. so the idea is the sort of the masks that we use are more often than not really unhealthy and bad coping mechanisms so what therapy kind of helps you do is sort of shine a light on why it's negative right and better ways of sort of dealing with the world and dealing with your more kind of negative feelings that and the importance of the creative process, because if the creative process is both connecting with another and respecting what is emerging from within oneself, uh, that's that's a powerful kind of mechanism. And so uh, to be creative, for instance, about, you know, if a recurring problem is to overeat, to be creative about that, which would invoke. Uh, okay, so sometimes if uh, sometimes people aren't available, uh, and sometimes loneliness isn't what it appears to be. Uh, sometimes uh, loneliness is more uh, fears of uncertainty or or all kinds of other things. And and so to to be creative, because I think that's the therapeutic process uh, in in every school of therapy is is uh, creativity. Uh, you create a new awareness or a new aspect of oneself, one of the two, that where where uh, you can deal with these um, uh, uh, sort of less optimum defense mechanisms better uh, and and build uh, kind of uh, leaning towards more mature ones. Uh, th there's, there's studies of, I think CBT also shows this, but, but uh, there's studies of uh, psychoanalytic psychotherapy uh, where we use psychoanalytic principles in once or twice a week therapy uh people uh people's level of defense mechanisms because you can rate these according to more uh adaptive and less adaptive and and they uh, tend after a period of psychotherapy they tend to be more adaptive in and use less of the less adaptive like just denial or you know uh just uh acting out your anger in road rage or something like that and and more of the kind of well uh, i'll write something I'll, I'll create something or or uh even um uh, altruism or humor or th these kinds of higher level kind of defenses and not that you can decide which ones you you're going to use and and when you're tired or something you, you tend to all of us tend to drop down to less adaptive 
mechanisms. But uh, but but yeah, to to have tools so that you can uh, kind of take care of yourself better. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, Chris, one of our final questions is going to be, what are, what is or what are some of the most important things you wish that others knew about therapy? Mm, mm-hmm. it's not, it doesn't have to be a scary thing, and it doesn't have to be uh, focusing on everything that's sad. It, it's really getting to know yourself. I, I, I think we've all three said this today, that, um, that therapy is a, 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 a process, therapy and, and growth in general, but particularly therapy as an aid, uh, 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 is uh, a tool to help us um, uh, become more aware of ourselves. And, and 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 therefore more uh, able to create and those kinds of things. But you know, the first time you see a therapist, you don't have to tell them about every awful thing that's ever happened or that you've done. Uh, it more they just want to get to know you because they want to help you know yourself. Mm-hmm. I love that. Wow. Yeah, yeah. that's a great answer. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chris. Thank you so much for coming on today, man. Thank what a you. Good, wow. What a great discussion. If you ever want to come back again, please. This is awesome. I, yeah, yeah. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. I've really enjoyed being here. Uh, I've I've come up actually with a couple of new ideas and and oh, awesome. uh, wow. so, so yeah, yeah. I've, you know the cre- creativity as a, a a way to connect. I, I, I that I'm really going to keep grappling with that. That's really interesting. Oh, and if but, you're interested, I actually wrote a blog article about that. Oh, yeah, yeah, you'll have to email that to okay, me. Okay, I got you. I will. <laughs> but I've really enjoyed it. I appreciate y'all's time. All right, thank, thank you, you so much. And uh, by the way, to our audience, if you want to follow uh, Keith's channel, it's, again, it's called HeathMD, H-E-A-T-H-M-D. And if we wanted to follow you on Twitter, um, what, what's your Twitter handle? A Chris Heath MD, all one word. Uh, is my uh, Twitter uh, and uh, Psychoanalysis Dallas is a Facebook page we just started. So so we'll be posting some stuff there. But uh, I use Twitter a lot. And, and of course, yeah, the YouTube channel, HeathMD. Yeah. And Chris, are you on social media anywhere else or it's mostly those? Uh, I've got a personal account with Facebook. It's 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 not real interesting. Uh, I do a little bit of Instagramming. Okay. I can't figure out how to do Instagram for therapy. So what I've been doing everywhere I go, I take a picture of myself on a couch. Uh-huh. If I can find a couch, I'll take a picture of my head. So, <laughs> That's so, really yeah, clever. Yeah, Instagram, A Chris Heath, MD. I'm starting on TikTok actually, and so so I've got one video on TikToks already. I'm I'm going to start cool. trying to do that. My my daughter uh, is 18 and she's getting me into this, and so uh, so yeah. Uh, I think it's a Chris Heath MD also. Okay, awesome, awesome. Okay, thanks for coming on again, and yeah, have a great uh, day. See you guys next time. <laughs> see, see you, man. <laughs> wow, wow, that was that was awesome. Yeah, that was really awesome. Good show. So, guys, um, if you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on uh, Instagram and on <clears throat> on Facebook, and at Seize underscore Podcast on Twitter. And remember to like and subscribe. Hit the bell. And we'll catch you guys next time. See ya.